The text for this morning's worship service is taken from James 2. As we continue our series on James, James 2, the verses 18 through 26. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. After the sermon, we will respond with the singing of Psalm 26, the stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, do you know that demons are believers? They have no doubt that God exists and that he is almighty. In that sense, they are even stronger believers than you and I. For isn't it true that we do have our moments of doubt, that often we have moments that we don't trust in the Lord our God in the way that we should? Do we not forget often about God's almighty power? That was even the case with the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Think, for example, about Peter, about the time the Lord Jesus beckoned him to come to him on the water. Suddenly, Peter started sinking. And what did the Lord Jesus say to him? He said to him, you have no faith. At that moment, Peter did not believe. He forgot all about how powerful God is. Demons, however, are well aware of God's power. Do you think that those demons, because of that faith, will be saved? No, of course not. It's impossible for a demon to be saved. They're absolutely corrupt. In other words, there's nothing that can change their position. When they fell into sin, there was no turning back for them. There was no chance for repentance, of repentance for Satan and his followers. What about those people who believe in God, as many also around us state that they do, but they live as if he does not exist? They see the beauty and the magnificence of God's creation, and they know that you cannot attribute it but to God. 
However, they do not go to church or read their Bible or pray to God or are interested in giving God the glory for anything. Do you think that such people will be saved? No. As long as they continue in their sin, in their ways, they will not be saved either. And why is that? That is because their faith does not include works. In our text this morning, James shows that you need works to go along with your faith. Without works, your faith is useless. It's like a motor without an electrical current flowing into it. Without it, that motor is useless. It's dead. You need that electrical current. The same thing is true of our relationship between faith and works. When there are no works, your faith is dead. The question then arises, do our works save us? According to Paul in Romans 3, that's not the case. And so, is this a contradiction to what James writes? Well, it is these things that I will preach to you about this morning. I will preach to you about the relationship between faith and deeds and what the role of our works is. The theme for this morning's sermon is faith without deeds is useless. And in order to demonstrate that, James gives two examples. First of all, the faith of the demons, and then secondly, the faith of Abraham and Rahab. Let me state that once again. Faith without works is useless. And then we will see two things. First of all, the faith of demons, and then secondly, the faith of Abraham and Rahab. What James is saying here is actually quite shocking. He compares the faith of some of the people to whom he writes to the faith of demons. Why would he do that? Well, he is making that shocking statement in order to shake those people that he is writing to, to shake them out of their complacency. And they are putting the wrong doctrine into practice. And the text shows what that wrong doctrine is and what that wrong practice is. Throughout chapter 1 and 2, James is concerned about the relationship between works and deeds. And now in verse 18, he moves into a new stage of his argument by interjecting the opinion of another person. He says there, but someone will say. Who is that someone? Well, James does not state who that is, but it is clear from the context and from the way that he builds his argument that he is having this imaginary conversation with a non-Christian Jew. And he uses the viewpoint of an Orthodox Jew in order to support his argument. He says, even a Jew who does not believe in Christ recognizes that faith and deeds go together. For both he and the unnamed non-Christian Jew have in mind the person who in verse 14 holds the opinion that you can have faith without deeds. For you see, that's the kind of thinking that lives 
among some of the people to whom he writes. They think that faith is something apart from works, from deeds. The Lord gives the one person faith and he gives the other person deeds. So their argument goes. It's like those gifts that Paul speaks about in that well-known passage of 1 Corinthians 12, where he writes about where each one has his own gifts. The one is able to prophesy, another one is able to speak in tongues, another one is able to interpret those tongues. There are also those who are able administrators and those who are able to contribute in other ways. Each person has his own gift. And now, so say these people, that's also the case with faith and deeds. The one person can show his faith, and the other person can show his deeds. They're two different gifts. Perhaps there are those amongst us who think the same. I'm a believer, but I don't really have any other gifts to contribute. I'm not much of a conversationalist. And because of physical or other limitations, I am not able to perform any duties for the church or for others. I have my faith. I know what I believe. And that's enough. There are those who are able to show their deeds and they can use that gift. But I don't have that gift and I don't have the opportunity either. Well, says Paul, even the Orthodox Jew recognizes that you cannot separate faith from works. You need both. They go together. It is then that he makes the shocking statement about the demons. He says that also the demons believe. They are strong believers even. They are neither atheists nor agnostics. And brothers and sisters, think about it. James is absolutely right. But that's also clear from the scriptures themselves. It says, for example, in Mark 3, verse 11, whenever the evil spirits saw him, that is the Lord Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. That's quite a confession that those demons are making. They knew who Jesus was, the Son of God. Hardly anyone in the world at that time was making that same confession, but those demons were. They knew. And the demons also know that there is a place of punishment. For we read in Luke 8, verse 13, that the demons begged him, that is the Lord Jesus, begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. And from the episode described in Mark 5 regarding the demon-possessed man, it is clear that the demons also recognized that Jesus is the great judge. For they knew that Jesus Christ had total power over them. And so they begged the Lord Jesus to enter into the pigs. Because they believed in the Lord Jesus, those demons shuddered. They shuddered with fear. They were deathly afraid of him. And so they should be. One of the most important doctrinal statements to the Jews, known as the Shema, 
is the one from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 where it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael. That's where the word Shema comes from. Shema means hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. As a matter of fact, that is often how Jews greet each other. They also recite it twice a day. It's a statement of orthodoxy. In this way, they distinguish themselves from the heathens who have many gods. They also use that phrase, the Shema, in the exorcism of, of demons. The Jews also recognized that the demons would flee at the name of the Almighty God. For they knew that the demons are painfully aware that God exists and that he has absolute power over them. But now, what is the result of that demonic faith? Well, their faith results in fear. Especially since they know so well who God is and who the Son of God is, they want to flee from Him. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did as well in paradise when they sinned? They were deathly afraid of Him. And so Adam and Eve tried to hide. The same thing is true of the demons. They know who the Almighty God is and how Almighty His Son is. The very presence of God brings about great emotions in them. They tremble with fear. And yet they believe. They tremble because they know that their faith will not save them. They have a faith without the works that God requires. And therefore, James warns about separating faith and deeds. He says, faith and deeds go together. But it has to be the right kind of faith. It has to be the right kind of deeds. And he says, the Jews also recognize that faith and deeds go together. Even they realize that faith and works go together. You cannot make all kinds of doctrinal statements such as the Shema and then think you are a true believer. No, they know that your faith must go together with deeds. Brothers and sisters, that kind of thinking we also encounter amongst ourselves. There are those who can be very nitpicky and particular about very fine nuances of doctrine and of the scriptures and of confessions. They can pick it all apart and have long and heated discussions with others about this doctrinal nuance or that doctrinal nuance. And some people can get so worked up about it that they won't stop. They will even take their complaints to synod. And don't get me wrong, we all have to be doctrinally sound. It's important that we do not stray from the truth. But don't think that every theological distinction is a matter of life and death. Because of our limited understanding, we will always have discussions about various minor points of doctrine. And it is good to discuss these things as well. We need to sharpen each other. We need to help each other think things through. We also have to make sure that we don't go on the wrong path. 
But if you argue about minor points of doctrine for the sake of the argument itself, if it is done in the spirit of acrimony, in the spirit of always wanting to be right, of not listening to others, then you had better think again. Then you had better think about what God wants from you. If you get so worked up about it all, and you are worried about this fine point of doctrine or that one, and if that's the one thing that gets you excited the most, then there's something wrong. Do you know what should be the most exciting thing in your life? Brothers and sisters, boys and girls. The fact that you are a child of God through no merit of your own. The fact that you are a saved individual. The fact that you have a great hope in your life. The fact that all your sins are forgiven. That should excite you more than anything else. For that's really something to get excited about, isn't it? And if that's the case, then you will also want to defend your faith in the right manner. Now, you will not tolerate it if someone says to you, for example, that you must add something to your own salvation. Or that Adam and Eve are not real persons. For that would take away from the glory of God. And then you will also do everything in your power to bring others to Christ. To let them see the great joy that also lives within you. For when you have the right kind of faith, then you will also show that in your life. You cannot help it. Your faith and your deeds go together. If our discussions about doctrinal issues do not comport with the Christian lifestyle and attitude, then all we are spouting is hot air. And you see, that's what was happening a lot with those Jews who did not repent, who did not want to listen to the Lord Jesus. Oh, sure, they said faith and works, they go together, but this is exactly what you must believe, and they have very fine distinctions in doctrine, but also very fine distinctions in the kinds of things that you should do and shouldn't do. And they got all excited about that. They didn't get excited about their salvation because they thought they had to do it themselves. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3 verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Some people have a one-track mind. They want to be seen as orthodox by others and show their knowledge by emphasizing certain doctrinal issues or certain issues having to do with the church order. But they don't necessarily do it out of a love for God, but for a love for themselves because they want to draw attention to themselves. To show how much more orthodox they are than others how better they are than others. In verse 20, he calls the man who conducts himself like that and who thinks that faith and deeds are two separate manifestations of the gift of God. He calls those men foolish in verse 20. 
The RSV uses the term shallow. And the King James Version calls him a vain man. In the original language, in the Greek language, James uses a term that means empty-headed. It refers to someone who does not want to listen to reason. He's got a one-track mind and nobody can get him off that track. Such a person is firmly convinced of his position and there is no way that anyone can dissuade him or her. And so it is clear that it is not enough just to believe. Faith is not just an intellectual assent to a firmly held position. It is not even so that if you are emotionally affected by that faith, that then you have the right kind of faith. No, brothers and sisters, and that includes you boys and girls, there is a lot more to faith. We come to the second point. In the text, James gives the true faith of Abraham and Rahab as an example. When you have a true faith, then that faith also translates into action. However, faith has to have the right object. Pagans also have a faith. They believe in the gods of their own imagination and make images of them, and they worship those images. But their faith is directed at a dead object. That kind of faith doesn't do you any good. They can jump high, and they can jump low, and they can sacrifice all they want to those idols, even sacrifice their own children, but it won't make any difference. It's not going to do them any good. And the same thing is true for the non-Christian Jew. He may have a very strong faith, and he may have a faith that is very active. But his faith is also the wrong faith. People get zealous about all kinds of things. Have you ever met a true communist? Oh, they have a strong faith. And they are full of zeal. Or what about Jehovah's Witnesses? They too. But is it the right kind of faith? Does it have the right object? The faith of the Orthodox Jew who does not accept Christ is directed towards a God without Christ. And if you take Christ out of the picture, then you are worshipping a false God. Also, such a God is a God of your own making. And in Romans, Paul had those kinds of Jews in mind. He recognized their great zeal. And at one time, he had that same kind of zeal. He even speaks about that in another letter. The devout Jews were very zealous to keep the law. But what kind of law? Well, first of all, the ceremonial laws. In the passage we read together in Romans 2, Paul is dealing with those Jews who believe that in order to be saved, you have to keep the ceremonial laws, including circumcision. And he's speaking there especially about circumcision. Those Jews believe that those who were not circumcised did not belong to the true Israel. They will be condemned. Well, says Paul, if you think that your salvation depends on keeping the ceremonial laws, then you had better keep all of the laws of God perfectly. 
then there may be no flaws in your worship. In another context, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul speaks about the Judaizers. They were Christian Jews who were also intent on keeping the Old Testament laws, the ceremonial laws. Although these Judaizers considered themselves to be Christians, they also took Christ out of the equation. But these ceremonial laws did not need to be kept anymore, brothers and sisters. Circumcision and the sacrificial laws are a thing of the past. They only pointed to Christ. Christ has come. Christ has fulfilled those laws. But, says Paul, it goes even deeper than that. Christ also fulfilled the moral law, the Ten Commandments. If you people, says he, are so intent on trying to earn your salvation by keeping the law and every minute point of the law and then some, then you had better keep everything 100%. For that's what God requires. The Jews and the Judaizers practice a religion in the original sense of the word, namely, as we saw last week, by going through a ritual, a form, or a ceremony. Christianity is not a religion in that sense. Oh, sure, there are certain rituals and ceremonies, but they are done only as a result of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish religion and all other religions of the world, they put the cart before the horse. With them, the rituals determine the religion. To them, the rituals and the ceremonies come first. The religion then is the result. But a Christian is a follower of Christ. Christ is foremost and first. He takes the lead. Christ even prepared our works beforehand, as we saw when we dealt with Lord's Day 23. He took those works with him and he came down to earth from heaven. And when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that with him also follow the rituals and all your deeds, all your good works. But you still can't separate your faith from your deeds. They go together. And now James illustrates from the two Old Testament examples what true and dynamic faith is all about. He gives the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Abraham and Rahab are two well-known figures, but for completely different reasons. In the first place, Abraham was a Jew, and Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham walked and talked with God, and therefore was known as a friend of God. He grew up with the knowledge about God. Rahab hardly knew who he was. Abraham was a man who was known for the fact that God's promises were made to him and to all his descendants to Israel. Rahab doesn't even come close to any of that. She belonged to a heathen nation. She belonged to a nation that had to be rooted out. Also, she was a very worldly woman. She was a harlot even. 
She was a sinful, immoral woman. And yet, both the faith of Rahab and Abraham are held up to us as an example. We're all familiar with the history of Abraham. The Lord God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham was commanded by the Lord to leave the land of all his relatives and friends and to go to a land that God would show him. And Abraham obeyed. He believed in the Lord that he would be with him. And the Lord made wonderful promises to him. He promised him numerous descendants. And again, Abraham believed in him. And then James mentions another event in Abraham's life when the Lord God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac on the altar. Abraham obeyed the Lord. Oh, sure, the Lord stopped him just before he was about to kill his son. But nevertheless, if the Lord God had not stopped him, Abraham would have done so. Abraham believed God that he would be the father of many nations, that many nations would spring forth from his loins. And now James connects this event with the time that Abraham shows his faith in God's promises by quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The same statement could be applied to Rahab. We're all familiar with her. Her story is found in Joshua 2 and 6. She was an important figure in the beginning of Israel's history in the land of Canaan when Israel was about to invade her country and to take the city of Jericho. Joshua sent two spies into the city of Jericho in order to find out the lay of the land. Rahab hid these men because their lives were in danger. And Rahab had heard of the God of Israel and believed that he was almighty and powerful. Her faith translated into action. She hit these men and thereby exercised her faith. It's a great story. Rahab had very little knowledge about the Lord God at that time. But nevertheless, she believed. She had seen and heard about how the Lord God had rescued that nation Israel from the grasp of the Egyptians and how he had drowned Pharaoh and all his hosts all his men in the Red Sea that had happened 40 years earlier. But she knew, make no mistake about it, all the nations all around, they all knew what had happened there in the Red Sea. Rahab knew as well. And those people trembled. Rahab had heard about it and she believed too. But her faith translated into action. She put her life into the hands of the Lord God and trusted him that he would save her and rescue her, which he did. When Israel invaded Jericho, her house was the only house that was left standing. She and her family were not destroyed along with the rest of the city. She received God's reward. Can you imagine separating faith from your deeds? If Abraham would have done that, he would have said, Okay, I believe you, Lord, that I have to go and leave the land of my fathers. And then he would have just stayed put. That would have been ridiculous. 
The Lord said, well, you don't believe me. Otherwise, you would have gone. Of course, Abraham believed, and his faith translated into action. The same thing with Rahab. And her faith was also credited to her as righteousness. But don't think that faith as such can save you. Abraham and Rahab were not saved by faith plus works. But they were saved by a faith that works. Faith is the means by which you access the gifts of God. It is through faith that you can plug into God's power. It is through faith that you can plug into the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those perfect works of His. But faith is still only an instrument. It is not faith as such that saves you. No, it is through faith that you are saved. God saves you. The Lord Jesus Christ saves you. And therefore you have to put your trust into Him. And so, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, let your faith be an act of faith. Put it into action. Soon we'll start a new season. How are you going to put your faith into action here in this church? You all have gifts. There's all kinds of things you can do. Also those who have all kinds of limitations. We all have limitations. We all have our gifts. Even if it is all you can do is pray because you are shut in because of physical limitations. That is something you can do. You can still pick up a phone and encourage people. There is so much that you can do in order to put your faith into action. Brothers and sisters, put your faith into action. Show that you're a believer. That you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe in him, then there is no limit to what you can do. And when you believe in him, then there is no end to the riches you will also receive. Amen.